Hello and welcome back to a new episode of Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host. Each week you may recognize my face or my voice from the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, airing episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays where about 12 feet that way I sit on a different set and each week I interview best-selling business authors, leadership titans, researchers, celebrities. We talk about items of interest surrounding the topic of leadership, the passionate topic that Franklin Covey has been a world-renowned expert in for nearly five decades now, of course, founded by the iconic leader and a friend of mine, Dr. Stephen R. Covey. And a funny thing happened on the way to success. What we realized is that on the On Leadership with Scott Miller podcast, some of the most downloaded, referred, and rated episodes were not those that were big movie stars or Pulitzer Prize winning authors always. They were oftentimes people like you and me that had successful but relatable careers. They had remarkable insights on how to build your own journey both in and to and sometimes out of the C-suite. And today, I'm delighted to have another person just like that, Lori Mazan. She is the co-founder, president, and chief coaching officer of Sounding Board, an expert in all things coaching. Lori, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Hi, Scott. Happy to be here. Delighted to have you, Lori. Um, you are, by all measures, an expert on executive coaching, the role that coaching plays in people's leadership journey. I think you're also a, a, a soon-to-be-released author. I believe you have a book coming out in the fall as well. Let's start there first because every author deserves a spotlight. Talk about your coming book. I believe it's coming out in October. Yep, I have a book. It's on pre-sale now. It's called Leadership Revolution. And it's really the idea that the leadership approaches that we designed in the last century are no longer applicable in the same way in this century that the external environment and the work environment has changed so much that we need to evolve or revolve uh, the leadership development practices to update it for the current environment. Lori, my day job beyond my role here at Franklin Covey, where I'm a consultant, I own a literary speaking and talent agency. So daily we have onboarding calls with budding authors and the question most new authors ask is, well, I'm not sure anybody wants to read my book. The world does not need one more marketing book or one more leadership book. And I say, that's not true. There will be hundreds of leadership books released this year and next year and the year after and cookbooks and romance books and you name it. And so I think the world has an insatiable appetite and curiosity for new insights. And so I wish yeah. your launch the best of success. Let's talk yeah. about Sounding Board. This is a company you co-founded and serve as the yeah. chief coaching officer for. Talk a little bit about Sounding Board. Sounding Board's purpose was to take the big value of executive coaching and bring it to all leaders in an organization. And I started my coaching career in the early 90s, right at the advent of the industry. And for 20 years, it was primarily uh, service, the C-suite. And those folks told me constantly, I wish I had this earlier in my career. So I partnered with a previous client of mine and we started sounding board and doing it virtually so that uh, we could bring the price point down and have it usable for all leaders in an org. And of course, then we had the pandemic, which really helped us a lot. 
Um, and so we're enjoying growing the company and providing that executive style coaching um, down lower in the house. Let's talk about that. I think I read a statistic where most coaching, 85% of coaching tends to congeal at the C level. And one of your passions right. is to quote you, move that down further in the house, so to speak. Why, why is that the case? Is it an economic issue? Is it the courage of middle management or up and coming leaders to wanna to ask for coaching? Is it just it doesn't fit within their professional development budget or purview? Why is it so ensconced disproportionately at the C level? There's really like two factor, two big factors. One is when executive coaching became a thing, the earliest coach was one who was working with derailed executives. And in the early days, that's what coaching was for. And no one wanted to be named a derailed executive. And so it was a kind of a hidden thing, a secret weapon. So people didn't know that I was coaching someone. That person didn't name that they had a coach. And it was all this behind closed doors kind of support for the C-suite. Um, then in around the mid-2000s, people started realizing, hey, this uh, coaching, executive coaching, leadership coaching is really a developmental tool. And they started using it in a different way, became more well-known. But when you think about deploying this to all leaders in an organization, hundreds or thousands or 10,000s, now you have two big problems. You have the price problem because executive coaching is very expensive. And you have a logistical nightmare. How do you deploy the coaching? How do you match the coaches? How do you track the coaching? How do you know if it's impactful or valuable without some kind of software and tools to do that. It's basically impossible to do it on a large scale. Let's talk about the current state of coaching. Uh, Franklin Covey, of course, being the most trusted leadership firm in the world, has a very large coaching practice. Several years ago, we acquired a prominent firm, Robert Gregory & Associates, and now offer coaching to our clients at all different levels. But coaching's taken on an interesting term, hasn't it? Because, you know, like you said, you know, back when coaching became, you know, a new investment, it was a very serious, bona fide, credentialized profession. And for many, it still is. Coaching certifications, having a robust pedagogy, if you will, in a process. And now we see a massive movement to turn leaders into coaches, right? Leaders as coaches, player coaches, people that are both individual producers and also coaching team members coaching in the moment, coaching as part of the day job. Everybody is coaching other people all the time. Will you opine a bit on what you feel about the fact that coaching seems to have taken on a mandate of anyone at any level who's in a leadership position? Yeah, I um, think the managerial or leadership roles require coaching skills. But folks in those roles are not coaches themselves. And one of the main reasons is there is a status or power differential between the manager and their direct reports. So I kind of say it differently. I say managers or leaders should take a coaching approach, meaning using coaching skills um, to help the, their direct reports both be successful and develop. 
but they can't be coaches because one of the basic fundamental ideas of coaching is the coach is a neutral thinking partner for the client or participant. And the manager or leader is inherently not neutral. So you would argue that there is probably different facets of coaching, meaning if in organizations we think that leaders of people should be coaching their people, it's a different style of coaching because of their right. inherent bias than if you were to say, someone like me hiring you as my coach, what's the main difference there? Um, when it's a manager or leader, they are coaching to a specific outcome that is their priority. It may or may not be the receiver's priority, the coachee or the client. It's job um, performance, it's, it's competency-based. It could be saving someone from a termination or preparing someone yes. for a promotion. Yes, I've heard that a lot, coaching them out of the business. I don't personally don't think that's a very good use of coaching. So having a, an outside coach like you or I provides this neutrality that makes it very safe for the person being coached to reveal their underlying thinking and mindsets, to shift those and try new ways of thinking and operating and then new, match new behaviors with that new thinking. And that kind of coaching tends to make a long lasting change. Lori, let's, let's rewind a little bit and talk about your own journey. I believe there's a great story of you once turning down a job at a big eight accounting firm that required all women to dress a certain way. And you took a little bit of a detour. In many ways, you may have stepped out of the normal expectation for a female leader on the rise. I'd love to have you share that story as long as you'd like in the hopes that you give voice to the millions of people listening and watching to this podcast, females, people leading females, people of different genders or different identities that are struggling with conforming to the norm expectation they think they're required to fulfill. Mm -hmm. So I've been in my career almost 40 years now. So it was a very different environment when I first started out. And yes, I right out of college, I was offered a job at one of the, at that time, big eight accounting firms. They provided a very unique interview situation. And the feedback from that interview situation was that I was innovative, creative, assertive, all these great adjectives. But as soon as I went to work at the organization, I was told there was a dress code which was a, a suit with a skirt, a certain length, you know, a blouse, silk blouse with a bow, a certain heel shoe. And so I wore that on the first three days and it had to be, oh, a black or a blue suit. And on the fourth day, I wore a lavender suit, um, still with a blouse, with a bow, with the right heels and all the rest of it. And within 15 minutes, I got called to HR and was told I'm not wearing the dress code. And I was completely shocked as a, you know, 21, 20, 22 year old new college grad. I was like, you hired me because you thought I was creative and innovative and assertive. And now you want to make me wear the same exact clothes everybody else is wearing. I don't get it. 
And so we actually parted ways after three days. They said, nope, that's how it is. We don't care if you're those other things. That was just an interview. And I was like, okay, I don't think this environment's going to work for me. So I quit. And that was actually on the East Coast. And I moved to California and created a very different life for myself as a result of that experience. I mean, the story is almost unfathomable now, right, in today's generation, but it's very real and relevant for people your and my age. That I grew up in the Disney company, right, early on, and then Franklin Covey, still a conservative organization, much more progressive now in order to attract clients and talent of very diverse thoughts and such, similar values, but perhaps different thoughts. What advice would you give to people, regardless of gender, that are perhaps trying to trailblaze, but they also have to work within an environment that does have some rules and some guidelines that everybody can afford to quit their job on the third day because they like the color purple or lavender in your case because of black or gray. What do you think is the right balance for people to express themselves, bring their full self to work and recognize that there are still cultural norms and organizations and those, those, those organizations are allowed to, to, um, to set those? Yeah, 100%. So I was 21, 22. You know, I thought I knew how the world was going to be at that time. Um, would I do the same thing now? Likely not. I have a practice of the martial art Tai Chi Chuan for the last 30 years. And there's a concept in there that I really like. It's called the unity of the opposites, where instead of compromising or having an A or B choice, you've tried to find the place where the two divergent ways of operating or ways of thinking can blend together. So that's how I think about it now, trying to blend who you are as a unique individual, as a woman, as what, you know, a, an ethnic group, whatever it might be, with the philosophy and context of the business or environment that you're operating in. And that's kind of the little sweet spot there that you're looking for. Um, as a 21-year-old, I was kind of rebellious and I wasn't looking for any kind of sweet spot. I was just looking for what I wanted at that time. Um, now, I think that blend works really well for everybody. It expands the point of view of the organization a little bit, and it also expands the individual's point of view to have to have some understanding and, and compassion of the organization's point of view. It's, it's actually an idea that we use to create our coach matching algorithm where we don't match the coach and the participant exactly the same and we don't match them so divergent that they can't kind of have a meeting of the minds but we want a little standard deviation there so both the coach and the participant you know expand their thinking get exposed to new ideas broaden their their scope expand their capacity Lori, recognizing every coaching situation is unique, right? It's, it's based on a set of unique circumstances, based on someone's values and performance and career and desires, hopes, dreams, fears, traumas, passions, you name it. I'm going to guess there's a couple of consistent themes in 2023 that your coaching experience coalesces around. To the degree there are some of those that could help leaders in the C-suite listening today to either feel validated or to validate 
um, issues they're hearing about in the organization. What are you generally coaching on right now? of things. I think for the C-suite, one uh, of the topics is how much the work environment has changed um, in the last five years. And that things that worked a few years ago are no longer working. Um, and a very different view on employees and employment than, say, 10, 20 years ago. Um, the fact that like when I started my career, people went to an organization for 20 years or more and stayed there. And if you had gaps in your resume, that was considered negative. Now for an employee, the average is about two to three years. And if employees haven't been at different companies, uh, hiring managers look a little askance at them. So it's actually rotated an entire 180 degrees in that time frame. So I think for folks who have been in the workforce for a long time, really updating their thinking about yeah. employment now, employees now, what they want, what they're looking for, how very different that environment is. It's so true. And then I think, yeah. And the second thing is just the increased level of uncertainty in the last few years. You know, in the, say, 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, things were more homogenous, more predictable. It, you, I used to help companies make 20-year plans or 30-year plans for the organization. Now we can hardly make a three-year plan because we don't know what's going to happen next. So it's a whole new set of capabilities and capacities to be able to be successful with a constantly changing, unpredictable environment where you really don't know what's coming around the next corner. Uh, speak to the people listening and watching today that feel like they could use a coach. Uh, they don't know how to start. The company may or may not afford them one. They might if they actually asked. Speak to the people who don't have a built-in coaching resource in the organization. Where does someone start and make sure they don't waste time being matched to someone? Not so dissimilar to that of a therapist or a mental health counselor. Coaching is clearly different. Right. But what's, what, what are the most important steps when someone is thinking about uh, working with a coach? Yeah, for C-suite folks, I would say the number one factor is trust that you get someone that you trust so that you can really open your kimono and talk about the things that are most deeply important for you. Uh, most of my career, I got new clients by referral. So someone who knew me referred to CEO, who knew me referred me to another CEO. Um, I still think that's the best way to go. Um, but you also can look to places like Franklin Covey, like Sounding Board, that have vetted the coaches for that level of leadership and can help that leader choose a coach that's really a good fit for them. A more neutral place you can go is the International Coach Federation. Um, they have a find a coach option on their website. But those coaches are unvetted, so that means you'll have to do the vetting yourself. So I would say, you know, a referral from someone you know and trust, a well-established, credible organization like Sounding Board or Franklin Covey, um, 
and then thirdly, the ICF. Um, and Scott, you may not know, I worked for and with Franklin Covey in the 90s, and I used to co-lead the, the original Seven Habits workshop. That does not surprise me. Welcome back. <laughs> Things come full circle. <laughs> Things come full yeah. circle. I started yeah. my career with Franklin, with Franklin Covey back in 1996 with Stephen Covey's oh, company, okay. the Covey Leadership Center, and then spent yeah. 25 years here. It's been an amazing journey. Uh, you wrote an article about radical self-resourcing, a phrase I'd never heard, radical self-resourcing. What is that? How do you get that? Why is that important? Uh, okay, so radical self-resourcing means um, prioritizing the things you need to be at your best. Uh, and it's a little different, I think, than the common view of that, which is things around taking time off, you know, um, maybe going to the spa, whatever, that kind of thing. This is, although there is a physical component of that, like make sure, making sure you're prioritizing and creating time for exercise and that type of thing. But there is so much more to resourcing than just the physical component. Right. There's an emotional component. There is a mental component, a cognitive or intellectual component. And there is a spiritual component to that. And I don't necessarily mean religion. It has to do with being connected to something that is larger than yourself. So it creates your kind of right positioning in the world for yourself. And that radical self-resourcing creates an internal strength that stands you up regardless of the complexity or uncertainty of the external environment. It allows you to be like the center of the storm where inside is just nice and calm, even though everything's swirling around the outside. And as a leader, this creates a kind of internal equilibrium, equilibrium or balance that keeps you, you know, solid and not leaning one way or another. And that kind of internal balance provides an amazing sense of clarity and support for yourself. Lori, speed round. The most successful members of the C-suite do what three things? Oh, they have a coach, number one. They listen to what other people are telling them and especially the things that they don't want to hear. So there was a little joke, we used to call it CEO disease, which was the CEO kind of living in a little bubble and not really hearing the truth from a large swath of the organization. So really listening. And then I would say a third one, which is an interesting one for the C-suite is making a decision. Like even if it's not the right decision, making a decision and iterating off that decision versus trying to wait until they have all the information to make the quote right decision. Best two skills to develop to guarantee or increase your likelihood of entering the C-suite. Top two skills that people need to master on their way to the C-suite. 
Number one, strategic thinking. So moving from a more tactical execution view to a strategic view. Um, very challenging for most people. Number two, uh, I would say hiring. How to really hire people with the highest potential um, so that you were filling in below you. So much for my speed round. I, I want to slow it down because I want to go deeper into this idea of moving from a tactical mindset, which really is how many people get promoted, right? They have proven they can turn nothing right. into something. They get stuff done. They, they meet their goals into this idea of being a more of a, a strategy player, thinking strategically. We hear this term so frequently, it's almost become a little bit laughable, uh, meaning I'm not sure people know what that really means. When you describe the competencies related with someone who is a strategic thinker, what does that look like, sound like, feel like? How does it present itself? Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna say it kind of simply. It has to do with taking and looking through a broader view. So when we are coming up in an organization, you know, the tactical outcomes or execution is what's key. So when we're doing that, we're looking down at the pieces that we are responsible for. But once you get high enough in the organization, your job is really to look at the bigger pictures, picture, not at the pieces. And that can mean across the organization, that can mean across your industry, that can mean across the globe economically. The view that you are starting with is exponentially larger than when you're lower in the organization and your view is literally the completing of a task that you can check off a list, did that. Back to the speed round. Top three competencies that college graduates need to be successful in the workforce in 2024 and non-job specific, non-technical specific. That, you know, a, 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 a litigator and a mechanical engineer and a school teacher and a copy editor could all share. What are the three top competencies college grads need to be successful in the workforce? Yeah, I keep not really answering your question, and I'm not going to hear either, which is, it's such a broad category of interpersonal skills or soft skills, whatever you want to call them. those. Yeah, I would say empathy, uh, listening again, and literally just interaction skills. Um, so I put that all in one category. I also think those new grads need leadership skills and a lot of programs now are starting to um, add leadership skills as part of the curriculum. And I would say the third skill they need is self-observation um, and in, in relation to their context. So the folks coming up have a very different view of the world and the work world and we are finding that it requires training them into being an employee. And part of that self-observation and being able to take feedback is what's going to allow them to advance. When you use the term self-observation, is that what I know as self-awareness? How is that different? Yeah, it's a more neutral view. It's almost like you're watching yourself from yes. somebody else's yeah. eyes. Yeah. 
versus you're still operating in your own yes. reality. You yes. actually want to be able to place yourself in a more objective reality. Well said. Last question. Uh, it's well known for those who listen to this podcast and the other for Franklin Covey and follow me on social or read my books. I'm the somewhat reluctant parent <laughs> to three young boys. My wife and I have three sons to both of our horror. They all have my personality and energy. Our sons are 8, 11, and 13. So I have a rising third grader, a rising sixth grader, and a rising eighth grader. Uh, what are the most important skills you need my wife and I to be inculcating uh -huh. in these three young boys so that they are ready to be productive citizens of the world and rise to whatever career heights they want? Yep. I have a son as well. He's now 28. Um, so I would say uh, number one would be decision making that already at those ages, your young men should be making many of their own decisions, even if those decisions are a choice decision. You can't have milk or water, right? Um, so starting very early with their own decision-making. A second would be to help them be more immune to peer pressure. Um, peer pressure ends up uh, damaging people in so many different ways. And when you add social media in the mix, it really is, you know, troublesome. And I would say the third is a sense of compassion and empathy for others um, and expanding from just a singular view to really a community or humanity or global view of the their position in the world. Lori Maison, you are the co-founder and chief coaching officer for Sounding Board. How can our clients learn more about your services? Oh, yeah. You can go right on the web to soundingboarding.com. Hey, it's nice talking with you. Thanks for your insights today. I'm going to be thinking a lot about this idea of self-observation versus self-awareness. Nicely said today. Appreciate your time. Best of luck to you at Sounding Board and your coming book. Remind our listeners and viewers again the name of your book and where they can pre-order. Right, it's Leadership Revolution, The Future of Developing Dynamic Leaders. And you can order it on Amazon by searching my name or searching Leadership Revolution. Lori, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.